but it's a, it's a privilege and an honor to have uh, Dr. Morocco with us, our senior pastor. If you guys would, just put your hands together and welcome him. Amen. Well, you got to make me feel at home. Aloha. Oh, I feel like I'm with family. Praise God. Well, you may be seated. It's good to see all, all these great Hawaiian folk here. My Minister Lehigh, you and your wife, and of course the Risers and the family. Man, I, we just feel like we're home. Hallelujah. And somebody got married since I saw him last, and I'm so thrilled to be a part of what God's doing here. Hey, listen, are you ready for the word tonight? Are you sure? Now listen, uh, Pastor Riser asked me to bring some of my books. Just I only brought the latest one that came out, which is The Multiplying Church, and uh, there's a sequel. It, it's the sequel to Miracle on Maui. So I just brought those. God's allowed me to write a number of books, but we were just flying. We were flying into the national prayer breakfast with the president on Tuesday, on Thursday, and um, we uh, said if we're that close to West Virginia, we need to come. So that's why we're here. And I'm glad you came. Thanks for coming. My goodness. In all this nice cold weather, I'm just thrilled you're here. Hallelujah. Come on, stand to your feet. Let's get into the Word. I'm going to share a word with you that is my life's message. Once I share this word, you'll understand a little bit about not only me, but about our church and what God's plan is for our church. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. And um, we're going to share the word of the Lord. Uh, we won't be able to stay too long afterwards. We've got to go back to Pittsburgh and real early tomorrow morning. We fly all the way back to Maui. And uh, we're hosting uh, Perry Stone on Maui for, for uh, a week. And so we're real thrilled to have him. He, I hear he's from West Virginia. Is that right? So it's great. Matthew chapter 16. Are you ready for the word? Yes. Uh, let me try it again. Are you ready for the word? Yes. All right. We're together. Matthew chapter 16, starting to read at verse 16, it says, Simon Peter had answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be what? Whatever you loose on earth will be what? Loosed in heaven. Take a look at Matthew chapter 18. We want to look at verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you want, bind on earth will be what? Whatever you loose on earth will be what? Loose in heaven. Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Come on, let's pray. Father, thank you for this great opportunity you've given me to be with family tonight. I thank you for what you're doing right here in West Virginia. I'm excited, Lord, about the faith that each of these have in their being a part of a birthing church, a church that's going to be used mightily by you in this area. So I'm asking you, Holy Ghost, 
come upon me and come upon this congregation in great power. Come on, people, let's pray in the Holy Ghost. Spirit of the living God, come in power. I pray for great liberty. I pray, O oh God, that there will be an impartation tonight that will shatter the powers of darkness in this community. And Lord, you would use the words that are spoken. Ring them true in the hearts of your people. Give us ears to hear and a heart to respond and eyes to see. And Lord, we'll be sure to give you all the praise, glory, and honor for it belongs to you. And we bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If Jesus says something once, how many know you better know what he's saying? But if he says something twice, the exact same word in two different contexts, you probably ought to circle it, put a star next to it, and say, if I learn anything, I'm going to learn that. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was doing doctorate at Fuller Theological Seminary, one of the leading graduate schools in our nation. It rivals Harvard and Princeton and all those big academic uh, universities. And the Lord led me to do a dissertation on demons it was the first of its kind for that institution and there's much you could there's much that I learned about the subject and how demons affect people and how it affects areas and territories this is back in the 19, 19 uh, late 70s but it was this passage of scripture that grabbed my attention because he's dealing with a fascinating issue binding and loosing you say well what in the world does this mean? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, I did what any researcher did. I, I looked up as many different commentaries and, and scholars that had anything to say about it, and I came to the conclusion that nobody knew what he was talking about because they all contradicted each other until I came across a very interesting article. And the article was written by a scholar who said, Now, when Jesus said these words, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. What did the people of the first century think he was saying? Well, the only way you could understand that is to understand the language of the first century. So what shaped the language of the first century was the literature that people read. Well, what was the literature they were reading? Well, they were reading the intertestamental literature. That's the literature written between the time of Malachi and Matthew. There was a lot of Jewish books written during that period of time. Well, so this scholar, what he did is he looked up in all this literature and saw if he, and attempted to see if he could find this phrase, binding and loosing. And lo and behold, it was all over the place. And here's what it meant. Are you ready? It meant binding demon spirits and loosing them. It also meant binding demon spirits and loosing their victims. Now let's take a look at that second definition. Binding demon spirits and what? Loosing their victims. Now, are you aware of the fact that both of those definitions are found in Scripture? For example, you look at the book of Revelation, and you'll notice there that in Revelation chapter 20, it talks about bind, uh, Satan is bound for a thousand years and loosed for a season. uses that very same phraseology. You'll also notice that uh, when Jesus talks about the strong man in Matthew, in Matthew 12 and in Mark 3. It's interesting what he says. He says that you bind the strong man and you plunder his house. Well, that means that you bind the devil and you loose his victims. Wow. But the most telltaling phrase Jesus uses 
is this one found in Luke chapter 13, verse 16. Listen to what he says. He says, And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound low these 18 years, be loosed from her bond on the Sabbath day? He uses the exact phrase. Where Satan has bound this person, Jesus came to set her free. Now think about it just for a moment. I believe Jesus wants to use us to be individuals that will literally see the power of darkness broken off the lives of the people of West Virginia. Somebody say amen. amen. How many of you know somebody that's bound by some habit or drugs or, or lifestyle that's destructive? Let me see your hand. How many know people like that? They need to be set free. How are they going to get set free? What are we going to do about it? Well, that's the topic for tonight. I want to talk on the subject, the power of binding and loosing. Now, I want you to think about this a moment. Let's suppose Jesus walked into this room tonight. He's standing where I'm standing. He pointed his finger at you and said, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. He has certain assumptions, right? Well, the one assumption he has and <laughs> is that you have the power to bind and loose. It'd be pretty ridiculous to say whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. You don't have any power to do it. But let me ask a question. What if you have power, but you don't know you have power? Do you have power? Boy, is this a trick question? Well, think about it for a moment. You see, you could have all the power in the world, but if you don't know you have that power, you ain't got it. You could have all the authority you that, that, that one could have, but if you don't know you got it, you ain't got it. So if the devil can convince the church that they don't have authority, he'll continue to do his nonsense. That's why in the scriptures, we have passages like the one found in Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame, talking about the devil, they overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, love not their lives even to the death. You'll notice, for example, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus, in his final message to the church, says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And then he goes on to say, Go and make disciples. His point is this. I have all authority. I give it to you. Come on, let's get the job done. Are you still with me here tonight? For example, in Luke 10, 19, Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. And he goes on and on. Paul, when he prays, think about it. What does he pray for? He has two prayers in the book of Ephesians. Both prayers deal with the issue of power. That, that, you know, that they would know the greatness of God, the exceeding greatness of his power to those who believe. He talks about you know, the, 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 the whole issue of the power of God at work in us. He prays that for the church. Why does he pray that for the church? It's because the battle is there. The battle as to whether you really know you have authority or not. You see, if you've ever had to deal with demons, you'll notice something about demons. Demons will attempt to try to find out if you know that you know you got power. And if you don't know you got power, they ain't going. Are you still with me here, folks? You see, one of the things that we have to understand about authority is 
that authority means perseverance. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have children here, young children? Okay. Now, have you ever had a child where you only told them one time not to do something and they never did it the rest of their life? It doesn't happen that way, does it? Now, if you have a child like that, let me know. We'll adopt them. Hallelujah. But it don't work that way. Why? Because what do you have to do as a parent? You have to assert your authority. So in my house, I'd say, now, son, come here. Well, if he's having a bad day, then no, I ain't coming. So I, I, we had a standard approach. I started counting. And if it got to three, he was in big trouble. And he knew it. So he'd wait till two and a half before he moved. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now, what was that? That's authority attempting to be released by your perseverance. Some people have this idea, well, it ain't working, so it must not be God. No, that has nothing to do with it. It may be not working because you're, you're, you have an opposition called the devil who's trying to keep you from fulfilling the purposes of God, and you're not going to go anywhere until you decide you have authority. Somebody say it with me. I have authority. I have authority. Oh, my, my, my. You sounded like you had some. Hallelujah. But there's a second assumption that's very, very important, and that is there's a relationship between heaven and earth. You see it in this passage. Whatever you bind on, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. You see the same kind of relationship in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is this relationship? Sometimes I'll use a big college word to make people think I know something. It's a symbiotic relationship between heaven and earth. Now, didn't that make you feel good when I said that? <laughs> Here's what Jesus is saying. Now, this is very important. You're the center of God's economy. God has chosen to operate through people. You see... Think about it for a moment. Remember when, when Cornelius was visited by an angel and the angel told Cornelius there in the book of Acts to go get Peter? Remember that? And Peter came to give the gospel? Doesn't that, make, doesn't that sound strange to you? I mean, that, that, that angel could tell more about heaven and about the gospel than Peter could. Why didn't the angel? Why didn't the angel share the gospel with him? Because it's not the angel's job. It's your job and my job. God limits himself on planet earth to you and me. Can you believe it? That's why faith is so important. Because he says, according to your faith, be it done unto you. You can sit around and be as religious as you want and have not a single ounce of faith. And God can't use you. They exhibited faith when they moved back to West Virginia and said, we're going we're to build a church. You guys exhibited faith when you left Hana, all you knew, and came out here to a strange country. Faith. God's going to use you. I exhibited faith when I left the big city of Honolulu with a large church and went to a tiny church of 100 people. And today it's thousands and thousands. But God downloaded in me faith to believe for miracles. 
Why does God do it? Because you're the center of God's economy. Nothing's going to happen on planet Earth unless he finds somebody who will agree with him and believe him. So I want you to say this. I'm important to God. If your neighbor's going to get saved, God's got to find somebody who'll talk to your neighbor. If somebody's going to get healed, he's got to find somebody with faith to lay hands on that person and believe. Why not you? Why not me? I think the church has been affected by a song. When I was growing up, there was a real popular song. Some of you kids, new kids on the block probably have never heard it. But us old guys know it. It's a song that went like this. Quesada, sada, whatever will be, will be. Anybody ever heard that song? Ten of you. Thank you. All the old folks here in the group know. <laughs> it's a dumb song when it was written. It's a dumb song today. But the interesting thing is that it affects the theology of the church. And here's how it sounds. Well, whatever God wants to do, that's what we're going to do. God's not the problem. He's looking for somebody who will believe him. He's looking for somebody that will say, God, use me. People that sit on their hind end most of the time never do a thing for God. Wonder why they don't have any authority or power. It's because the power of God is released when you believe in Him and realize that you're important to God. Come on, somebody say it with me. I'm important to God. Somebody say it with me. I have authority. This became very real to me through an unusual set of circumstances. Before I went to Maui, I was pastoring in Honolulu for four years. So we've been in Hawaii now for 44 years. Kids have all been raised there. And uh, when I was pastoring in Honolulu, uh, our church grew very large. And I remember there was a bag lady that used to come to church. I don't know if they have bag ladies here. But a bag lady in Honolulu was a person who collects garbage, puts it in a grocery cart, and sees those things as her own or his own, whoever it is. And uh, she would come to the church. And I remember one day I was at back greeting people as they were leaving. She said, Pastor, do you like my new dress? And I'm sure she pulled it out of a garbage can somewhere. But I always treated her with dignity. You treat everybody with dignity. One day somebody came up to me and said, Pastor, are you aware that that lady has no place to live. She's sleeping in the park in Ala Moana Park. Well, my heart went out to her, out to her and I, I asked my wife, I said, Honey, we need to probably see if we can rent her an apartment. Well, we ended up renting her apartment. And I'll never forget the day when my wife and I moved her into her apartment. She insisted on bringing all these bags of garbage. And, you know, I thought I was brilliant. Oh, I thought I was so smart. I said to her, why don't we sort through this and we'll keep the good stuff and we'll throw away the bad. That was a bad idea because there were horrible things. I can't even tell you what was in there because if I told you, you wouldn't remember a thing I said after I told you what was in there. It's horrible. In fact, my wife had nightmares for three nights as a result of that one incident. Moved her into that apartment and it wasn't but... Oh, a sh uh, probably a 
six months later or so, I can't recall exactly when, we moved to Maui and others helped her. And uh, about a year after I was on Maui, I got a call from the senior pastor I was working with there in Honolulu. And he said, do you remember that lady you helped, that bag lady? I said, yeah, how's she doing? He said, well, she got hit by a car and she died. I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. He said, but I thought I ought to call you. I said, okay. He said, yeah, I just received a call from her trust fund. I said, her what? Her trust fund. Come to find out she was a wealthy lady. She had more money than I had, and I rented her an apartment. Do you know how much apartments rent for in Honolulu? She had more money than I had. And boy, was I mad. I don't know if you've ever had a call like that. I hung up the phone, and God spoke to me. He said, son, you're just like that bag woman. I've, I've given you my name. I've washed you in my blood. I've filled you with my spirit. And you act like a bag woman most of the time. Now, that'll preach. Somebody say it with me. I have authority. And I'm important to God. You say, well, pastor, how do we bind and loose? Well, I'll tell you the next time I come. We'll just stop right now. No, I'm just kidding. I, I came a long way, and you did too. I'm going to give you seven things, and I want you to write them down because it will change your life. You're going to be used mightily to shape the destiny of this area. You get these seven things in your spirit, you'll never be the same, neither will this church. Are you still with me? Here's the first one. Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You look at the context there in Matthew chapter 16. And right out of the context, you understand how to bind and loose. Jesus has just asked a question. Who do men say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's out of that confession of faith that Jesus says these words, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What was it that Peter said? Well, what he said was the gospel. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The first, and I'm going to put these all in P's so it's easy for you to remember. The first P is proclamation. Everybody say proclamation. proclamation. You know, the devil is not nervous about what happens in a church on Sunday morning. Where he gets nervous is what happens on Monday morning. When the people leave that church and they're committed to proclaiming the gospel to somebody at their job or their neighbor or their friend or their family. You know, I just thought witnessing something that a Christian does. But I found out that it's more than that. Paul writes in the book of Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. Everybody say it with me. The what? Power. Say it again. What? Power. Say it again like you mean it. What? Power. It's the power of God. What we don't understand is when we start sharing the gospel, if it's a testimony, or even if it's inviting somebody to church, what you're doing is you're binding demon spirits. Because the gospel itself has the power to bind and loose. The good news of Jesus. Never forget an incident that happened in my life where I, uh, and I've shared this with my staff, I was asked to speak at a large church in Northern California, one of the largest churches in Northern California. And I was going to preach twice on Sunday morning and one Sunday night. This was years ago. I flew in to that city 
got into my hotel room that evening. And when I got into the room, it felt like there was a demon sitting on my head. I couldn't think, couldn't pray, couldn't do anything. And at that moment, I thought, well, if that devil's going to give me a hard time, I'm going to give him a hard time. So I said, I'm going to find somebody to witness to. So I walked down, got to the ground floor, went into the restaurant. There was only one person in the restaurant. It was the waitress, and she was behind the bar. So I got up to the bar, ordered a soda, and inside I said, this is your blessed day. And right there at that bar, I led her to the Lord, and we prayed together. And I'll tell you what, we had church the next day. I taught this to my staff. One of my staff members was having a rough day. He was having a horrible day, and he remembered, oh, I got to go find somebody to witness to. So there's nobody, you know, we don't have crowds on Maui. So the only place there was any kind of a crowd was at the airport. So he goes and parks his car at the airport, and he's going into the airport area, and he sees this guy. So he decides, I'm going to witness him. So he runs after him. Well, the guy thinks he's going to get mugged, so he starts running away. Well, that young pastor caught up with him, shared the gospel. The guy didn't get saved. But I'll tell you what happened to that young pastor. He felt so good. He felt like he had power over every demon in Maui. Hallelujah. Everybody say proclamation. What's amazing to me is that so oftentimes the very thing that the enemy fears the most is what he tries to keep the church from doing. That brings me to the second thing. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, it was not only proclamation, but what you'll notice, he was declaring praise. He was declaring praise. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You'll notice that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, praise made all the difference. There in the Old Testament, the story of Jehoshaphat where in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat was facing an army he could not win against. And literally what he began to do, as a result of a prophetic word, he began to praise God. In fact, he had the, he had, he had the choir go before him. I'm sure the choir members weren't too excited about it, but they went out in front singing and praising God. And what did God do? He brought an ambush, killed the enemy. They fought against each other. And there, without even raising a sword, Jehoshaphat won the war praise you'll see it in the new testament paul and silas are in jail they've been beaten unjustly for casting a demon out of a out of a girl they're roman citizens at that and uh, it was against the law for them to be beaten like that and instead of complaining now listen to me preachers will sometimes when they when they feel unjustly taken advantage of oh they'll resign and say forget it i am gonna do something else I mean, here he's beating, putting stocks. And what are they doing in the middle of the night? Are they complaining? No, they're singing songs of praise. They started singing a duet, and God made it a trio. And when God sang, the whole place shook. Hallelujah. Set them free. Praise is very important. That's, you know, sometimes people think praise is kind of the warm-up for the message. No, praise, you're changing the atmosphere. Are you hearing me? You're allowing faith to be released as you lift your voice in praise. Now, think about it sometime. What if instead of when you have a flat tire on the highway, getting out and kicking the tire, why don't you just have a Holy Ghost knock down, drag out, and praise God out there? Hallelujah. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Praise. It binds and it looses. 
Let me share one story of a good friend of mine. He's gone home to be with the Lord. His name was Sam Sasser. He's one of the great missionaries of our time. He, uh, he opened, in fact, uh, we have Marshallese congregations throughout the United States. Those Marshallese congregations have come out of the ministry of Sam Sasser. His wife's still alive, Flo, and uh, they, they were used mightily to bring a major Holy Ghost revival to the Marshall Islands. Sam tells the story that he, as a young man, was commissioned by the Lord to go to the islands of the Pacific, and he went to the island of Yap, and he came to a village that was under the control of a man by the name of Chief Dupoy. He had tattoos from head to foot. Sam played football in college. He was a big guy, and, and Sam came to the chief and said, I'd like to tell your people about my God, and the, and the chief said, well, he said, I'll let you do it, but you've got to pass some tests. So they had some wrestling matches, and Sam won. And at the end of the last wrestling match, he said, now, can I talk to your people about my God? And the chief said, well, there's one more test. Now, I wouldn't have believed this unless Sam had told me this. And Sam doesn't lie, so it's the truth. The men got in a circle and began to clap in rhythm and began to chant. And two young ladies that were in a hut outside of the circle ran to the center of the circle and began to dance. While they were dancing, they were levitated 10 feet high in the air, and they were dancing 10 feet high in the air. The chief turned to Sam and said, can your God do that? Sam said, I'm impressed. He said, but my God's not into that. He said, my God can bring them down. The chief said, no, he can't. The test was on. Now, I don't know what you would have done in that situation, but you know what Sam did? He went outside of the circle where those men were clapping and chanting in a field right next to the village, and all he did is he lifted his hands and began to praise the Lord. And as he praised the Lord, those two girls <laughs> slammed into the ground. One of the girls broke her leg. And he ran to the son of the circle and laid hands on her for healing. The chief turned to him and said, you can tell my people about your God. Somebody say hallelujah. Somebody say praise God. And you know what Sam did for most of his life after that? Was he went from church to church teaching people how to praise the Lord. We think praising God's a few songs. It's a heart yearns to enter into the very throne room of God. Somebody say, praise the Lord. That brings me then to the third P. Are you still with me? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was declaring the fulfillment of a promise that the Messiah would come. I believe in promises. You get a promise from God, you can take that baby to the bank. My mama used to pull promises out of a promise box. And as a kid, I thought, ah, that seems a little strange. Now, I like to pull promises out of a promise box. You say, and uh, we believe in the prophetic promises. We believe in prophetic words. We believe God speaks. And uh, that's why I'm a tither. Look at me a moment. I'm a tither. I've been a tither ever since I was a little boy. Every dollar I've ever gotten, Mama said, you put 10 cents out of every dollar in the, in the offering. The reason I'm a tither is because the Bible says a powerful promise. It says... Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there might be meat in my house. Malachi 3. And see if I'll not throw open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings too big for you to contain. And I'll rebuke the devourer for your sake. And you will be called a blessed land. Are you still with me? I, I'm, I'm, I believe in a promise. And so I teach tithing. I practice tithing. In fact, I go way beyond the tithe. Because when I tithe, I haven't given God anything. I've not given Him a thing. All I've done is return to Him what's His. And if I don't return to him, I'm dishonoring him. 
because he is creator. He is the one who's provided for everything I have, and I will not dishonor God, and I'm not going to steal from him. And he says it's robbery. So the tithe is the minimum. That's what my wife and I figure, how, how, how much can we still live and give? Hello. We gave $140,000 last year. You say, how'd you do that? Supernaturally. Supernaturally. I don't have that kind of money. I have to believe God for money to come to my hands so I can give it. This is not a little game we play. Your pastors and myself, we don't get any percentage off of what you give. We're on fixed salaries. Everything you give to this work goes into the work of God. And if you'll be a giver, the promises of God are yea and amen. Given it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Jesus said that. Those promises. You know, I lay hands on the sick even when I'm sick. You say, how's that work? I'll tell you how it works. I'm not, I'm not the one who gave the promise. Jesus did. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Look, if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through anybody. Somebody say amen. amen. So I lay hands on the sick even when I'm sick. And when I'm sick, I have people lay hands on me because of the promise. Are you still with me here? Everybody say promises. You get a promise, take it to the bank. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. When we were building the cathedral on Maui, it's the largest church building in the state. We are halfway through that building project and ran out of money. That is, the money that we'd borrowed didn't cover the cost of the building. Now, there's a problem. If you're in contracting, you know what I'm talking about. If you're in a project and you run out of money, you're in trouble because nobody's going to come alongside and refinance it for you, and nobody's going to finish the building. Not only that, I had four lawsuits against me. We had a football team, and a kid got hurt. Parents were suing the church. A steel worker fell off the roof. The state was, you know, it was his fault, but the state's suing us. And there, it went on and on, four lawsuits. Now, you got four lawsuits against you. You've run out of money. Hello? You better get a word from God or you're in trouble. And I got a word from God. Oh, was it a word. And it shall come to pass out of the book of Isaiah. And it shall come to pass in that day that the burden will be lifted off your shoulders and the yoke from off your neck and the yoke will be destroyed by the anointing oil. In the year 1994, I preached a series of messages on breaking the yoke. Every morning in the early morning prayer meetings, I prayed, God, break the yoke. You know what God did? He solved all four of those lawsuits. Two of them he solved, he solved by giving me dreams in the night. One dream he said, it's in the middle of the night, I'm in a dream, and he speaks to me in dreams at times, and he said, he said here's what I want you to do. Do, 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 do. do those things. I got up the next morning, I did exactly what he said. That lawsuit went away. And then that one about the suit with the, with the kid who got hurt. We'd had a lawyer, it was an insurance lawyer, and it wasn't looking good because he didn't know what he was doing. And it was going on month and month and after month. And in the middle of the night, God gave me a, a dream. And in this dream, he said, hire this man. I'd never met the man. He gave me a name. He gave me a name in this dream. He said, hire this man. Next morning, I called this lawyer. Never met him. Called him on the phone. I said, I am Dr. Morocco. I said, uh, I'd like to hire you to handle a lawsuit that we're in. I told him about the situation. He said, he said, well, look, I'm not the lawyer that you hire to defend you in a lawsuit. I'm the lawyer you hire if you want to do a lawsuit. 
and then there's a quiet on the other end of the line. And he says, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'll take your case. He walked into the courtroom. He knew the judge. He even knew the people suing us, and he knew the law. And in 30 minutes, it was, well, it was all over. Something that lasted for month after month and didn't look good. 30 minutes, bang. You get a word from God. Come on, folks, listen to me. This is reality. This isn't some little game. There's a real God who wants to work in real ways in your life. And use you mightily. Listen, I'm screaming and hollering because I only get one chance to scream at you, so I'm, I'm going to give you my best shot. And then you can have your pastors minister to you after that. Everybody say promises. promises. That brings me then to the fourth P. You still with me? What's the first one? What's the second one? What's the third one? Here's the fourth. You look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two along, uh, others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And then he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You go, well, what in the world does that have to do with this passage just before? Everything. The fourth P is purity. Everybody say purity. You got people trying to bind demons, and demons have bound them. I wrote a book. It's not here. It's called Defiled. It's the way the enemy works to destroy the church. Listen, you've got a sewer pipe from hell coming into every home in America. It's called the Internet. You can see any evil thing you want to see on it. And you can do it in the privacy of your own home. What you don't know is every demon in hell is waiting for you to click that thing on so they can infiltrate your mind and your body. It's not a game. I know what I'm talking about. It's an evil thing. And you got people, ministers of the gospel, falling. Why? Sat next to a guy. I was at, the, I was at this uh, national prayer breakfast. This was the, they had three days of various events, and one of the events I was sitting next to was a guy who was a church member of a big church in, in the Washington area, not Washington, D.C., but the state of Washington. I knew the pastor. I knew the church, great church. Here's a guy who fell morally through pornography on the Internet. Destroyed his marriage. Destroyed everything. A sewer pipe from hell. You put a guardian against her, against these things. Are you hearing me? This is real. Because it's very difficult to bind demons when you got demons binding you. Are you listening to me? So everybody say purity. purity. That brings me to the fifth P. Are you still with me? And that's the word prayer. When Jesus, Jesus, right after he said, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Verse 18 of chapter 18. Look at what he says in verse 19. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. The fifth P is prayer. My father wrote in the flyleaf of my Bible when I was a young man these words. He said, if a minister of the gospel doesn't pray two hours a day, he's not worth a dime. I looked at that and figured out worth about a penny. I prayed three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But you can tell by my anatomy, I didn't pray long. Amen. 
But when I read that, I was in my late teens, early 20s. And uh, I said, if there's anything I'm going to do, I'm going to do that. I thought I was doing well praying two hours a day until I went to Korea. The largest church in the world. They have a 4.30 in the morning prayer meeting. Thousands come. In fact, they're so loud that I brought a delegation who stayed in the hotel across the street from the church. They were awakened by the prayers of the people in the church across the street. We're not talking about a little church. We're talking about a church of 800,000 people. I stood on the stage where a million people gathered to pray. I preached in Olympic Stadium with 100,000. I preached in that major church and preached in all the extensions. You know, the key to that church is prayer. It's the foundation. The key to this church is prayer. Did you know that all through KC at 5.30 in the morning, all through Hawaii, people are gathering for prayer. On Maui alone, we'll have over 120, 130 people every morning praying. Some get up at 4.30 in the morning to go to the prayer center. Some at 5.30. You say, how in the world can we be doing what we're doing? I'll tell you the only reason is because we're a church that believes in the power of prayer. You will not build the church God wants here unless there's an army of people that will rise and pray. You can go to some churches and they have, the only prayer they have is an opening prayer and a closing prayer. We ain't doing that. Jesus said my house will be a house of prayer. And that's what we're going to be. My dad joined my staff in 1984. And he began the early morning prayer meeting. He was an old-time Pentecostal preacher, one of the great missionaries. I was born in Calcutta, India, where he started two churches there. They're still going on today. One of those churches, the English church, is one of the greatest works in all of India with a hospital, feeding programs, everything. Then he pastored the largest church in the Philippines. Today it's a church of over 40,000. But I saw mom and dad pray, and they prayed. And when he joined my staff in 1984, he began the early morning prayer meeting. That prayer meeting has gone unstopped for 36 years. And it's the only thing that has kept our church alive. You can't imagine, you can't imagine the millions and millions of dollars our church needs. You can't imagine the numerous buildings that we have to buy and, and do and ministry staff by the hundreds. The only thing that's kept us going is the prayers of God's people. They're praying for me right now. Every morning I pray for your pastors and the ministers on this staff. And so do the people that gather in prayer throughout Hawaii and everywhere we are. Everybody say prayer. Commit yourself to be a part of it. This ought to be a powerful church of prayer. Paul writes to the Romans, says in Romans 15, join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. We are in a struggle. It's a struggle for our lives against the powers of darkness. The only way we're going to win is to raise up an army of our warriors. I pray that you will be a part of that group. That brings me to the sixth P. Are you still with me? What's the first one? Second one. Third one. Fourth one. Uh, fifth one. Ah, here it is. Are you ready? Jesus says, For where two or three come together in my name. The sixth P is personal. Everybody say personal. 
We sometimes call ourselves a personal church. That's why we lay hands on people every service. You know, it's interesting to me how so impersonal a church can be, even if it's small. Some people say, oh, I like small churches because it's personal. That doesn't matter. That, that doesn't mean a thing. You can be in a church of 50 people, but it can be impersonal because everybody just talks to the people they know. They don't care about anybody else but themselves. Hello. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Did you know that everybody's looking for something when they come to church? They're looking for somebody to love them. They're looking for somebody to know them. Oh, we love everybody. No, you don't. Don't give me that. Do you know their name? Do you know anything about them? Do you know their needs? How are you going to find that out? you got to take time with people. It's so funny because, you know, I've, I've been to churches where people come sit down, somebody come up to them and say, hey, you're sitting in my seat. They say, I didn't see your name on it. Stand up, stand up. Look at that indentation there. That's mine. That's my seat. And we hurry off. Don't take time to meet any new people. Just hang out with the people we know. Where two or three are gathered in my name. We need to be personal. There's one thing we try to be at KC is personal. You've got pastors that are personal, ministers that are personal. You've got people that really genuinely love you. Everybody said personal. That brings me to the final P. Are you with me? All right, you ready for a review? First one is what? So we're going. If we proclaim the gospel, we're going to make a difference. We're going to bind and lose. If we praise the Lord, we're going to what? We're going to bind and lose just by our praising. We take the promises of God. We believe and act upon them. We're binding and loosing the word of God. Promises of God are yea and amen. We live holy. By our very act of living holy, we're binding demon power. And God's putting in us the ability, because of that purity, to take authority over the devil. Fifth, we're praying, and our prayers bind and loose. And sixth, we're personal, because the Bible says, listen to what the Bible says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There are people that you can reach I cannot reach. People you can reach, your pastors cannot reach, your ministers cannot reach. They, they trust you, and, and they'll share their heart with you. And then you got to be, you have to have the ability to be confidential with them and pray for them and believe God with them and walk with them through their situation. You can't imagine how powerful that is. I, I brag on my wife all the time. My wife started a ministry about eight years ago. Was it eight years ago? She, eight, eight or nine years ago, she... You know, one day she comes to me and says, God spoke to me. I said, what did he say? He said, I'm supposed to start a ministry to drug addicts and alcoholics. I said, what? You don't know anything about drug addicts and alcoholics. You know, we've never done any of that stuff. I said, how are you going to do that? She said, I don't know. But God's going to show me. So she's praying, and God says, I'm going to raise up people. I'm going to raise up people that, that have been delivered, that are in the church, and they're going to help you. So one day she's sitting in the front row like this. And a young man walks by on his way to put money in the daily seed. And the Holy Spirit says, talk to him. So as he's walking back, 
she grabs him. His name is Daniel. He said, Daniel, would you, would you be willing to help me with this ministry called Transformation for Drug Addicts and Alcoholics? He said, well, of course. What she didn't know is he was an alcoholic. He'd been an alcoholic for a long time. He'd get so drunk we wouldn't see him in church for months. But the moment he said yes and got involved, God freed him from that. She reached out to him. And now that ministry, personal ministry, dealing with people and their needs, are, she has, that thing is now hundreds of people. Come on, somebody. Just willing to reach out. This could be the most personal church on the planet. Smile at me. I'm preaching good. Come on, help me out here, guys. Everybody say personal. That leads me to the last point. How do we bind and loose? And that's presence. Everybody say presence. Where we're two or three come together in my name, there am I in the midst of them, the presence of the Lord. When I was born, I was born in a house in Calcutta, India. My mother was being helped by two Pentecostal midwives. When I was born, they were praying in tongues. You can't get any more Pentecostal than that. I was raised in Pentecostal church. I've seen everything in Pentecostal church. I've seen somebody same time, same station, every Sunday give the same message in tongues and same interpretation. You could, you could, you could set your watch by it. Sister so-and-so gets so excited, runs into the wall, gets knocked out. It's awesome. Praise Jesus. He said, Pastor, wildfire. Listen, I'd rather have wildfire than no fire. I was filled with the Holy Ghost as a senior in high school. Began to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. But something happened in our church in 1995. Evangelists came to the church and had a week of meetings. He's from South Africa, a young man from South Africa. God said, I want you to go to the United States and bring revival to the United States. He obeyed God. He had $300 in his pocket. That's all he had. He came to the United States. His name was Rodney Howard Brown, and he came to my church in 1995. He was real controversial at the time. But he had a week of meetings, and, you know, I'd be sitting in the front row, and my wife would be sitting next to me, and, she, and, and she'd get so touched by the Holy Ghost that she would, she would get drunk in the Holy Ghost, fall out of her chair, and end up as a heap on the floor crying. I'd never seen her like that. At the end of the service, I had to literally carry her to the car. We had people that get up to testify, and they couldn't talk. They'd fall out under the power. One night, I couldn't find any of my pastors. They were all out on chairs throughout the congregation. People would laugh. People would cry. People would run around the building. And I didn't feel a single thing. I sat there didn't feel a single thing. I thought, well, this is great. Praise God. My people are getting blessed. I wasn't worried about him. Well, just before the Friday night service, he, Rodney went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning and evening. And Friday night was going to be the last night except for the Sunday all day. Well, Friday night, just before the service, he, he says to me, he says, now, Pastor, he says, he says I'm going to have you pray for people. Now, what I thought he meant, so this is what I thought he meant. Because he'd line up everybody at the end of the service. Everybody. He'd line them up. And he'd lay hands on them and say, be filled, and they'd all fall out under the power. I mean, 
We're talking the entire cathedral packed and hundreds of people lined up. And he'd pray for everybody like that. And so I thought he meant I'd kind of be his sidekick. You know, we'd kind of we'd kind of do it together, you know. And he'd, he'd laid hands on power God to hit people, and I'd just kind of grin, you know, and say, yay, you know. I'd hitchhike on his anointing. So he gets out, service, he's lined up everybody. All right, got the picture. We're talking hundreds of people. He's lined them up. And then he makes this announcement. He says, I'm not going to pray for anybody tonight. Pastor Morocco's going to pray for everybody. I said, oh, no. I mean, I literally thought this. I said, this is the end of my ministry. Because I'm going to lay hands on people and nothing's going to happen. And they're going to go, is that it? I go, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I mean, it was bad. It was really bad. And I didn't know whether to come up on stage and, and hit him one or what. I mean, I'm, and, but I'm stuck. We have a high stage with a lot of steps, and they were lined up, I mean, hundreds. I'll never forget, I took the last step down. There was a lady standing next to me among a row of probably 200 people or more. That was one row. There was three rows like that or more. I took a step like that. I reached my hand out to her. I never touched her. My hand was about a foot away from her head. Power God hit her, and she flew. I'd never seen anything like it. She flew. And at that moment, something happened to me I'd never felt in all my life. Power of God came on me. You know, the word glory is a word that translated means weight. I felt this weight like a mantle come on me. My knees buckled. My heart started to palpitate. I thought I was going to die of a heart attack. And I didn't know what to do. So I ran. I started running this way, and as I ran, people started falling like dominoes. All I could remember is Rodney crying out, ushers, because they were falling so fast, there were no ushers to catch them. When I got to the end of the row, I literally thought I was going to die, so I went up to the Rodney, and, and, and I could hardly walk. I laid, my hands on, I laid my head on his shoulder, and I said, I quit. I can't do this. My wife said, I've never seen you like that. It's because I've never been like that. And you know Rodney, he's South African. You know he, he just he, he's not gonna take no for an answer. So he gra he tells two pastors to come take one arm, the other one take the other arm, and take me to the rest of the group. I quit twice. He kept me going. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I'd never seen anything like it. I walked down the aisle. I mean this, this is the most profound thing happened. I'm walking down the aisle. A lady twirls like a top. I look at that. Whoa! What was that? She said, when you walked by, it was a wind. Just pick me up. Those two guys that were holding me, we, we were laying, I was laying hands on people that lined up from restroom to restroom. We have a women's restroom on the far end of the cathedral and a men's restroom on the far end. They lined up from restroom to restroom. This was the third final row. We're talking probably over 1,000 people that were just in line. I got to the end of the row. It was a lady. I remember touching her, and the power of God hit her. But instead of falling backwards like many people fall, she fell frontwards. And she hit the bathroom wall, the men's bathroom wall. And when I turned like this, the two men holding me fell backwards. They said, Pastor, it was like a wind when you turned like that. Well, I didn't know all the ramifications of what happened that night. 
But a week later, I was in Honolulu at a minister's meeting, and a pastor I'd never met from a different denomination came up to me. I'd never met him in my life. And I hate it when people say, do you remember me? And I go, no, I don't remember you. He said, I was there on Friday night. I said, you were? What happened to you? He said, I was in the restroom. This is the absolute truth. He said, he said, I was in the restroom. And he said something you never say in a restroom in a Holy Ghost meeting. He said, I want to feel your power. At that moment, that lady hit that wall and the power of God went through the wall, knocked him off his feet. All I remember is when I turned like this, because the door to the restroom was about, about from here to where Minister Lee Howe is. And when I finally got to that door and looked in, all I saw was two feet on the floor and the ushers running in, putting him back together. It was that pastor! And I thought, Jesus, Jesus, we don't have a clue of the power of God to change things, to bind it and lose. Are you ready for the power of God to touch your life? When you come to church, are you hungry for more of Him? Or is it just religion like normal? All depends on you. There's a hunger. I'm telling you what, God will touch you. That night I realized something that I'd never known. You know when Peter and John said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk to that lame man at the gate beautiful. I understood what they said. Such as I have. Stand to your feet. Lift both hands in the air. Begin to pray.